This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. Wow. Hey, today is like a really uh, special day. I, I you know, um, uh, as we were uh, talking this morning, uh, today was 11 years ago uh, that a group of friends gathered in a living room uh, here in the Brooksville area, and uh, my family and I had arrived about 48 hours earlier, and uh, we were gathering together with just uh, you know a, a couple handfuls of people talking about what would become Vine Life Church. So we are literally, this is today is the 11th anniversary of the church, if you will. So uh, yeah, kind of cool. So uh, I've, had a, I've had a great weekend, uh, you know, uh, just God's been doing some good things. Uh, it's also been an emotional weekend, had some tough things going on. Uh, and uh, so I was just thinking about what a, a fitting moment as we came to uh, 11 years. Actually, uh, Jen and I were talking earlier uh, as we were talking about communion. We, she said, he goes, you realize it was 11 years ago today that we met. And so very cool. Um, anyhow, uh, in the middle of that, I thought then how also appropriate uh, that I would be pointing out to you this morning our cross wall. And if you are not familiar uh, with our cross wall, you know, uh, on this wall, these crosses are not just decoration. They're symbolic of our church body. That largest cross right in smack dab in the middle is symbolic of the, the whole body. And then each of these smaller crosses, these individual crosses, represent the individuals and families who brought them and the uniqueness of, of the gifts and character and nature they bring into the church. And so we always celebrate that. It is a, a great reminder of that as you look over there. I, I encourage you, just if you haven't before, to take a, a stroll along that wall and check out all those crosses. And so today, uh, I have a, a, a cross that was brought this morning, uh, also unique. It's different than any of the crosses up there. Uh, the Colliday family, Gabe and Ashley and their children. Uh, can I ask you guys to stand up for just a moment? And uh, I don't want to embarrass you or anything, but so there we go. Uh, give them a big hand. And uh, make sure that you get to know them, and we're glad that they're here. All right, very cool. Well, continuing our study of the book of Romans, if you want to open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5, we're still in chapter 5, prepping for our transition next week into Romans 6, but... You know, if you have been here up to this point, uh, you know, these things you're going to already know. But, you know, over the past few weeks, we've been really looking at the internal cues of the letter. Uh, if you will remember, you know, this letter was written to a church in which Paul did not have a relationship with. His relationship uh, is simply that by letter. Uh, they, they, are not, uh, they were not established by Paul. It's one of the few churches he writes to that... He did not actually establish the work there. It was established by some of his disciples. Uh, and so now he's writing them. In particular, the situation is uh, that there are Jewish Christians and non-Jewish, that is Greek Christians, meeting together. Uh, there's some tension in bringing those uh, two groups together, some questions that are uh, filling the air and, and, and all of that. 
Uh, and so uh, Paul, Paul speaks through that letter in kind of a fourfold way. He begins in those first four chapters talking about God's good creation and how it was corrupted by sin, the uh, events that happened that led to its downfall, and yet how we know from creation that there's a general sense of revelation from the creation that speaks of the goodness of God, what is natural, what is the right thing, what, what we should expect in the world. The next several chapters, uh, chapters uh, 5 through uh, 8, speak to the whole idea of new creation and the need for the new creation, but not only the need for it, but how that new creation is uh, transcending all things. It's changing everything. Chapter 8 in particular really uh, hits heavily on this whole idea of the, the, the whole cosmos waiting, yearning, longing for this revelation. And then there from chapter 8, it builds uh, to the uh, kind of the high point in the, cha- in the book, chapter 12, talking about transformation, the way we have been looking at this letter over uh, the last several weeks about the transformative power of God and how that works in us to transition us, to bring us to a place where we can know and do God's good pleasing and perfect will, and how the, the all of creation is longing for this transformation, uh, longing for its impact on not only uh, our lives in the personal salvation and justification, but specifically uh, how that impacts all of God's cosmos, that literally the entire creation yearning, desiring for the revelation of the sons of God. Now, typically when, that, when, this, when we have studied this letter over the last 500 years since the Reformation, the focus has been primarily on that of the uh, personal salvation, personal justification, which is very much a part of the letter. Don't want to downplay that in any way. Uh, but it is a small part of the letter. So the Romans Road kind of way of looking at the book of Romans is significant. It's important. We don't any way want to dismiss that. But simply saying that there is a whole lot more in the book than just that. That is uh, central to the book, but there is more there that we want to continue to hold together those pieces so that we understand all that God wanted us to get through the letter of Paul. So today we pick up again in chapter 5. Now last week as we got into chapter 5, we just talked really pretty much about those first two paragraphs uh, and we're focused on the whole issue of peace with God as a matter of present reality. Uh, that meaning that the, the, when it talks about the peace of God, it speaks in the aorist tense, meaning a present reality that is ongoing. And so the idea is, is that if you and I are reconciled to God through Christ, that we have, we honestly have present now, the, we have peace with God. It's not something in just in the sweet by and by, but that we are no longer enemies of God. And out of that, there is an overflow of abundant blessing that comes to us. Uh, and how that we not only uh, want to have, be at peace with God in the sense that we are no longer His enemies, but we also desire that sense of hopefulness that comes out of that, that sense of love that comes out of that, the expectations of the kingdom. So today, as we look at that, we not only are talking about uh, how that fits together and hope and love, particularly in the face of suffering, but then now we're going to begin to build on that here in verse 12, talking about the implications of that hope and that love in our lives, which honestly continue all the way through chapter 8. And so what we're trying to do is hold all of these pieces together 
so that as we're going through the letter that we don't drop off some of those things. If you will think about it, as I talked about in chapter 1, the first time this letter was read, it was not read like where somebody read a couple of verses and said, now let me explain what he means by that. And then read a few more verses and said, let me explain what he means by that. The very first time it was read, it was written to those persons. They were not having to understand the context of why or what was happening. Uh, that letter was being addressed specifically to them. And so the letter was read from beginning to end in its entire context. Uh, I would encourage you that one of the things you might want to do as we're going through this series is on a fairly regular basis, uh, part of the, a great way to prep your heart for these discussions is to, is to uh, read that from cover to cover, uh, all 16 chapters of the book of Romans. Now, as I say that, some of you might be thinking right away, like, that is a really big ask. And, uh, you know, the way most people read their Bibles, it is a big ask because what do you do? You, get, you read a little bit and you contemplate and then you read a little bit and you contemplate and then maybe you go down the rabbit hole on one particular point and you spend hours there and then all of a sudden you go, how am I supposed to get all the way through 16 chapters when I spent the first two hours just getting through chapter one, you know? And, and so, like, that sounds like this huge ask. And so I want you to think about what, how it would have been read that first time and one of the things, just in a really practical uh, kind of way, uh, you know, uh, in terms of discipleship, one of the things I encourage people to do all the time is if you have a smartphone, if you would grab that, your, uh, your app, like for Bible Gateway or Logos or Uversion, whatever uh, one you use, and then uh, if you'll look there in the menu, it gives you the option of audio Bible. You can pick drama, you know, dramatized or whatever. Find your version uh, that you're reading in. And then what I would encourage you to do is to listen to that text as you're reading it. In other words, you're both reading and listening at the same time. It's a much more holistic way uh, to understand the letter. And then let it speak to you in that bigger context. It takes absolutely just a matter of minutes because you're not sitting there stopping and pondering. It will force you to keep everything together and just keep working your way through it. And you can do that even on a weekly basis as we're coming to this time. We'll help you to hold all the pieces together and keep it all in mind. Otherwise, what tends to happen is we, we drill down and we treat verses like a string of pearls. You know what I mean by that? When you treat the Bible like a string of pearls, then you take a single verse out of its context and you look at it and you go, ooh, that's pretty. And you make conclusions about it that have nothing to do with the whole necklace. That have, you know, in other words, you get one little piece of it and then you're making conclusions that are oftentimes separated from their context in such a way that you are making conclusions that actually have nothing to do with the text. You are reading your 21st century experience into it and divorcing the text from its context. And so this is a, a real important exercise I would encourage you to do to take time and, uh, and do that. So with that said, let's jump in here. Romans chapter 5, beginning of verse 1. I'm going to uh, be reading from the English Standard Version. If you are using your phone or a tablet, please set that to silent for the sake of those around you. Uh, go ahead and read it in the translation that you like best. It's my favorite translation today because you're reading it. Let's take a look. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, 
we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for perhaps for a good person would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, like the result of the one man's sin for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification for for if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned from that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so the act of right, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. All right, so we are here in the middle of the chapter, and but you know I wanted to keep the context together, so I read all of chapter 5. Actually, if I really wanted to keep the chapter together, I would have read to you chapters 1 through 5, by which you would probably left by now. But anyhow, um, but as we hold it all together, last week, uh, you know, as we looked there, and right there in verse 5, Five, uh, verse, or verse 1 in chapter 5, it opens with the word, therefore. Now, if you have not heard this before, or you heard it last week and it seems redundant, that's okay, you'll be all right, uh, pointing out that it is a general rule of interpretation 
Anytime you read the word, therefore, the first question you ask is, what is the therefore there for? Why is it there? What is it doing? And what it's doing is it's pointing back and making a conclusion based on the things that have been set ahead. Remember again, that whole con- idea of context and the string of pearls versus keeping things in context. We want to know why the therefore is there because there is a point being made based on everything that was said before. Now, chapter 5, as we get there in verse 1, it's building on everything that has been said in those first four chapters, but especially chapter 4. Now, as we're coming to this second therefore in the chapter, uh, it's, it's it, you know, there in paragraph 3, and then again in paragraph 5, it's just simply building on the verses that were immediately preceding that. So as we pick up here uh, in verse 12, uh, we just have to go back verses 6 through 11 and be reminded that Messiah died for us even while we were outside of a right relationship with God, making us enemies of God and enemies of the kingdom, but that Jesus has reconciled us by the giving of his very life. So the therefore there is to explain to us that the, uh, what is all taking place in this next couple of verses, what he's explaining to us about Adam and about Messiah is all built on the premise of what has happened there. In other words, uh, that because God has reconciled us through Christ, these things are true. And so he begins with a picture, if you will, uh, of typology, of playing Adam and Messiah, the first and the second Adam, against one another to help us get a full picture. Now, in uh, in him doing so, he tells us that the one man sinned, And that death was the result. So that death came to all who sinned, which is everyone. Mortality is 100% in the world. There is no one who gets out of here alive unless Jesus comes back before you go. So absolutely, 100%, the condition of sin is universal. Now, this whole allegory there that he is painting, uh, showing us and, and putting these things to again against one another, break down to a certain point, and I always point this out with analogies, you know, is that anytime you get into an analogy uh, in the text, you need to let it just kind of speak in a very general kind of way. It is a good, it is general hermeneutical principle. Anytime you come up upon analogy, if you press that analogy too far, you will end up with a misunderstanding of the text. In other words, if you drill down into the analogy, the analogy breaks down. It is meant to do that. It's supposed to be a pointing, uh, you know, a signpost. It is not meant to be something where you dig down and you go, well, I wonder what this thing that he did here in the analogy means. And, 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 you, and you begin to just like end up in this whirlwind going down the rabbit hole until you completely miss the point of what's being said. So sticking with that greater sense, uh, so one man sinned and death was the result of his sin. And because of that, then death came into the world and affected all who sinned, even though their transgression was not the exact same thing as what Adam did. So, while that, so, so then the second thing he says is then, then the li- likewise the one man, Messiah, Jesus, One man, 
died for all those who are reconciled so that they might live. Now the difference is that where the analogy begins to break down immediately is that one man sinned and all sinned. One man sinned and all died. Now on the flip side of this, because of what one man, it uses that, word, that phrase a couple of times uh, there in the text, because of what one man did, on the flip side, that man being Jesus, the Messiah, fully God, fully man, because of what he did, all can live. All who will be reconciled can live. So even though one sin separates, he says, even after many sins, the many transgressions, through the one man, there is something greater that has happened. Through the one, all can be reconciled. Now, I say can be because the reality is, is that although the solution is universal, unlike the situation with Adam where all fell, not all get saved. We, are, we don't uh, teach a, a universal salvation. We are not universalist. The scripture teaches very clearly that not everyone uh, will be saved, that some will depart from him. But all can be. There is a universal solution that can, all can be reconciled, just not all are. So then, in verse 13, what Paul is saying is that regardless of whether a person had the Torah, that is the Jewish Christians who were being addressed early on in chapter 1, or whether they did not grow up with Torah, that is in the case of the Greek Christians, think to yourself, Gentiles who grew up in paganism, that the condition that they both face, uh, that universal condition, the same consequences come to all, which is death, because sin and death are universal conditions, everyone dies. And if you just think for just a moment, you don't know anyone who's escaped. You and I know it is, a, it is what we would call an ontological argument. It comes from nature and reason that everyone dies. That is our expectation. And so what he's pointing out to these uh, Christians uh, in, there in chapter 1, remember all of chapter 1 through 5, if we keep it all in one bigger context, he was saying to that they were going back and forth as they were looking at the context of creation, talking about the goodness of creation, the goodness of God that's evident through it, and then also aware of what is amiss, what's wrong, what is unnatural, what are the consequences of sin being in the world, which is including death. And he's pointing to the way it ought to be versus the way it is. And he, but he says in the midst of all of this, that for those who grew up with Torah, that you did not escape the universal condition. In other words, that Torah did not rescue you from your sin and give you eternal life. That is not the job of Torah, never was. And if you and I think about it for just a moment, if you were raised in the church, I don't care how well you were discipled, if mama was right there teaching you Bible verses, memorizing them, that you had a thoroughgoing biblical education, maybe you even went to Bible college and stuff like that. I don't care how much of the words you know. I don't care. The reality is that you and I have still sinned. No matter how well brought up you were, you did things that violated your own conscience, your own understanding, your relationship with God, and at times you experienced things like shame and doubt and all those kind of things. It is a universal consequence. And so Paul is just simply pointing out, making that argument to them, 
that in spite of the fact that you had Torah, uh, that the reality is, is that you still sinned, you still die, and are still in need of the forgiveness of sins that only comes through Jesus Christ. So it is not universal that all uh, who live on the earth get saved, even though it is universal that everyone dies. But it is universal in that there is the option. Everyone can come to Christ for salvation. Now, Paul is saying, uh, regardless of, of how you grew up, you, know, you still have that same problems. And, and so, uh, he says, those who did not grow up with Torah, uh, here's the reality, that up to this moment, uh, you are, uh, did not fully understand specifically what it was that you had violated. In other words, the reality is, is that all have died, that where there is law, the, even if you don't know what that law is, even if you don't understand what the law is, that there is enough revelation in the earth, there's enough general revelation through the, God's good creation that you and I know that some things are right, some things are wrong, we violate our conscience, we do all those kinds of things, and so there is no argument in which I can say, well, I didn't know, and therefore I'm not guilty. In fact, one of my earliest, you know, uh, recogn uh, uh, becoming aware of that was when I was a teenager, and uh, uh, we'll just say that there was a moment where maybe, you know, I was in my car and accelerated a little too quickly that might have resulted in clouds of rubber coming back from my car while it didn't move very far, uh, and in which a, a, a light went off uh, uh, on somebody else's vehicle, and I found myself getting, you know, maybe like a ticket or something, for instance. And the officer came to my car door, and he said, hey, that's called excessive acceleration, and he wrote me a, at that time, $50 ticket. To put that in 1980s dollars, hundreds of dollars. And I went home and I was furious and I said to my dad, Hey dad, can you believe that? And I said, I've never heard of such a law. And he says, does it make it not true? I said, but how can I be guilty? I didn't know it was against the law to spin my time. It was just cool. My friends thought it was cool. I didn't go any, I didn't speed. I was just showing them how cool my car is. And my dad got me on the phone with my brother, who was a lawyer, and my brother began to explain to me, ignorance of the law is no excuse. I said, that's not fair. How can I be guilty if I didn't know I was guilty? I wouldn't have done it. <laughs> Whatever. You've probably told people that before too, right? I, if I had known, I would have never done it. Lie number two. And he says, you know, that would be everybody's argument. Everybody would come into the court of law absolutely innocent. They would go, well, I didn't know it was wrong to kill my brother. I didn't know it was wrong to steal those groceries. I didn't know it was wrong to excessively accelerate until your tires came off your rims. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. And do you know that's a universal principle? The, whether, no matter how secular the law is, 
all over the world, we have that same understanding. Everywhere you go, the understanding of law is that ignorance of the law is no excuse because here's the thing. There are things in nature. There's the ontological argument, the reasoning from all of creation that says that there are behaviors and conducts that are outside, out of bounds, and that no one is innocent. So Paul making his point from nature, says from the order of creation, starting there in chapter 1 all the way to this point, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the proof that all sin is that all die. It's been that way from the very beginning, even to those who didn't have Torah. Now, if you had Torah... The benefit, if you will, is that you were aware of what you were doing. Right now, you're probably thinking to yourself, I don't know, I just feel more guilty. Well, hopefully, in some ways, that will motivate you and you understand what is good, what is right, what is wrong, and it causes you to adjust uh, your, your character, your behavior, your understanding of things. And what we believe, uh, the reason we call this series Transformation, as we look at chapter 12 and the things that are being said there, that you and I, from Torah, from the instructions, that's what the word literally means, from the instructions, you and I begin to understand how it is we relate to a holy God, how it is that we build relationship with God and one another so that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I can do His good, pleasing, and perfect will. That's the goal of transformation, that you and I would begin to experience His power and His presence in our life so then we conduct ourselves in the manner that Jesus conducted himself, that we would live differently than the world around us, and that through that power of the Spirit, through that transforming of the Spirit, we would then give that away, and people would eat of the bread of our lives. That's called discipleship, in which they are also being transformed, not only by the power and the presence of the Word of God, but by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit at work in your life and in their lives, transforming them until we become more and more like Jesus. Now, the role of Jesus then is making all things new. It begins with his sinless life and then in his sacrificial death, which he provided the way of escape from the destructive sequence of sin that leads to death. Now, when you and I have new life that is found in Christ, uh, we are beginning to experience that new life, uh, and yet the reality is, is that we still face the realities of death until Jesus returns. We have a promise of new life that we are looking with great expectation. So by in faith, we are embracing that which we do not fully see yet. It's the tension of the scripture that we call the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. We have the now of the kingdom when people get saved. We have the now of the kingdom when people are delivered. We have the now of the kingdom uh, when people are, are uh, set free from demonic oppression. We have the now of the kingdom when people are healed. We have the now of the kingdom every time we see the kingdom of God breaking in, the finger of God present in the present world in which we live in, and we long for more of that. In fact, all of creation is longing for that day, Romans 8 tells us. In the meantime, you and I lean into the Torah, the instructions, to help us understand how it is that we relate to God. Now, that word Torah often gets translated in your New Testament 
as nomos or law. And so uh, a lot of times when we look at that, uh, we immediately have a bit of a disconnect mentally in that uh, from the idea of instruction because we grew up in a Greco-Roman kind of influence. Our view of law in the United States is primarily built on the idea of penalty. You do something wrong, you pay the stupid tax. Right? So I excessively accelerated and I got to pay the $50 ticket. If you have done something in which you have gotten slapped by the hands of justice or maybe even something greater, it has cost you more, uh, you know exactly what I mean. We associate law with penalty. We associate law with punishment. But in the Old Testament, the primary usage of Torah, of law, is instruction. Think about it this way. Those first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, when you read through them, you don't read a whole lot of legal briefings. In fact, you and I, if we look through like the book in Exodus, and we read those Ten Commandments there in the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 20, there's a lot of Exodus outside of just the Ten Commandments. There's a lot of Exodus where we're watching the interaction of people relating to one another and relating to God, and you and I are being instructed by those stories. In fact, the vast majority of all the material and what we call the law is not thou shall not do or thou shall do or anything like that. It is entirely wrapped up in the midst of story where you and I are learning about how the people of God related to God, it is giving us instruction and in how to do life with a holy God. You and I begin to realize how holy other He is, how different His ways are, and then you and I become increasingly more aware of how different we are than that. And that's where you and I come to the realization that maybe I'm just not as good as I thought I was. Hello? Now, the truth is, most of us don't think of ourselves as being enemies of God. In fact, it's very hard if you function that way on a regular basis. It can really mess with your head and, and, and make it hard for you to even relate to God if you always think of yourself as just that wretched sinner who was so terrible and everything. And then you'll kind of live a, vict a life without any victory. If you have this feeling like, you know, I, I don't know why God rescued me and everything... You and I need uh, to delve deeply into the heart of God and recognize that once we were enemies with God, but through grace, through His mercy, we've been made the friend of God. And being in that relationship, uh, you know, we cling on to things like Zephaniah 3, 17, that He whirls around and delight at the very thought of you. So I need to live out of that place. I am now the friend of God. But what I do recognize is that that, that old man uh, that, that I was, as I'm becoming this new creation, that I still have this baggage that's all over me, and the law has this way of constantly pointing it out. Because I may have been ignorant about it before and only somewhat aware, but through Torah I become very aware of just how, what the gap is between me and God and how great is His grace and His mercy in that. Now, hopefully, when you come to that moment of realization of just how far away you were and that you've been made, uh, that peace has been made so that you are now at peace with God, uh, that you also then would wrap your head around His mercy, His love, His forbearance, His kindness, His tenderness, 
and that you would bask in that place. You would just be like, wow! One of the mistakes that's often made is that when we see that gap, that we live there, and so even though we may confess with our mouths to people, I'm saved, I'm good, God's got this, I'm for Him, internally we're constantly going, I'm a wretch, I'm terrible, I'm awful, I'll never be able to do the right things, and we live out of that place, and we have zero victory in our lives, and everyone around us knows it, whether we ever confess that or not. If you live in that place of the pluses and minuses all the time, if you're constantly weighing out what a failure you are and how far God had to stoop to rescue you, you will live in such a place that there will be no victory in your life. Nobody will see the overflow of the grace and the mercy of God. And they'll go, well, I know how to become miserable. You just become a Christian. And oftentimes, isn't that the way the world sees us? Joyless. You know, like they're always fasting because they're always repenting of something. And now there is a place for fasting and repentance. Don't misunderstand me. But, you know, the primary role of fasting in my life is to deal with the creature so that I can still the creature enough to be able to hear the voice of God in my life. The primary reason for the disciplines is so that I put things like Scripture in my heart and I begin to meditate on those things and fill my heart with, with a biblical understanding about who I am in Him, about how I, I can access His power, His strength, His love, His mercy, uh, so that whenever I go to pray, I do so in faith with an expectation that God loves them and is for them and he wants to demonstrate his kindness and his mercy in the world through me and so uh, I want to have a right relationship to those things not a wrong, wrong relationship with those things but here's the thing new life he says is found in Jesus and that was something that Torah couldn't do simply because it was never the job of Torah any more than it's the job of your New Testament. Your Bible does not save you. Jesus saves you. Torah's job spells out in detail what all of creation has been telling us in a general way, which is that we need Jesus. In other words, we become, we abound, when Paul says that where sin is abounding, he says we're abounding an awareness, not that Torah increases the amount of sin in the world, but that we abound in our awareness, we see the gap, is what should then drive us deeper into His arms, deeper into His affection, to realize how much He loves us that He closed the gap. But never forget, you know, Psalm 19 says, Torah is good, rejoicing the heart. See, our interaction with Torah ought to be, I see who my, good, who my God is, that He is good, that He is great, that He is kind, that He is merciful, and that it ought to produce a sense of celebration, of, of like, wow, this is the holy God that I am in relationship with now because of His mercy and grace. That's what Torah is supposed to do. Paul was not antinomian. He was not anti-the law. And so if you and I read the works of Paul in such a way that it makes us anti the law, you're not reading it right. I love you, but you're not reading it right. Paul was not an enemy of Torah. Paul made 
So God made his creation good in Genesis. When Paul writes in Galatians about the tension between the flesh and the spirit, he is in no way contradicting Genesis and saying that the law is not good. He is not saying that creation is not good because in many other times he talks about, and with my flesh I will see God, the experience of that God renews this body, that Jesus had a bodily resurrection. We do not divorce flesh and spirit from one another. That's a heresy called Gnosticism. That's why we don't have spirits floating around on clouds in heaven. That is something from 16th and 17th century Catholicism. It's not from the Scripture. There is a bodily resurrection. Jesus said, here, touch and feel these holes in my hand. Here, reach in this riven side. Jesus was physically resurrected from the dead. That's Christian teaching. Anything else is paganism. Now, in that, whenever he spoke then uh, there in those first four chapters about the law, and he was talking to those Jewish Christians about how good it was that they grew up in a Christian home, learn, or grew up in a Jewish home learning Torah. He does not then come to chapter 5 and say, well, you know all that stuff I said good about the Bible, you know, back there? Throw it out. Paul is not contradicting himself. Paul is laying out in logical consequence that the Torah has pointed us a direction and it showed us the fallacy of our own goodness, has shown us the, 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 our desperate need for being a new creature recreated. In fact, as we get in next week into chapter 6, we're going to talk about all the imagery there of being baptized and its connection to the resurrection and the whole idea of being a new creation. And so chapters all the way through the rest through chapter 8, we're going to be talking about how that new creation and all those good things about what God is doing to make all things new. But in the interim, right here in chapter 5, what he wants us to understand is the reality that all have sinned, all have died, and all of us need to be made new. We need not just a life improvement plan. See, many of us came to church with the life improvement plan idea. Oh God, I just want enough of you so that my marriage will be okay. I want enough of you that my children will be okay. I want enough of you so that I'll, you know, I, I, I'll be okay. Or I want to tithe a little bit. Well, you know, not too much, but you know, I'm going to give a little bit so that you'll protect my finances. And, you know, and if things are going bad financially, I'll give a little more. And, and where we play these games with God where we're really not relating to Him because we honestly believe when we look in the mirror, I'm really okay. My neighbor's okay. Everybody's okay, which is part of why we don't evangelize. But what the Word of God does, Hebrews chapter 4, it, it serves as a way for us to reflect. We see ourselves as it is. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to expose joint and marrow, soul and spirit, and it gives us a picture of where we are actually. The Word of God tells us That apart from God, we are desperately sinful, desperately self-destructive, and that death has come into the world, and the only 
means of plausible escape is that God recreates all things and we join Him in that new created order. We become a new creation in Christ and everything is radically turned upside down and we turn our, we don't just simply like do a little home improvement. We just don't smear a little Jesus on what we used to do, but we are radically being transformed by His character, by His nature, by His power at work within us so that we become entirely new persons in Christ. And I'm looking forward to delving into that with you next week but as I said, I don't have time this week. Aren't you glad? Mm-hmm. Some people are going, oh, no, you can go ahead. Then somewhere about lunch, they'd be going, okay, you can stop. <laughs> Listen, what I hope you're gleaning is that your life, your faith, should not be a battleground between law and grace between mercy and justice, where you're constantly weighing yourself out and, and just constantly wondering, am I in, am I out, am I in, am I out? I mean, that is a works mentality that is exhausting, and it will steal all of your victory. It will steal all of your joy in Christ. There is a reality that I have entered into a relationship that has put me at peace with Him. I am confident of his heart for me, and then that drives me uh, in, a, in, a, in a sense of expectation of that the more I press into him, the more his power is at work in me, the more I experience his love and his grace and his mercy, and that the overflow of that brings victory into my life, victory in the lives of my family and friends, victory over death, victory over hardship. It helps people break through the midst of their suffering like, I want that, don't you? And so we have a blessed hope of seeing his kingdom come and knowing that we're loved by God. The role of Torah to instruct us in how to live that life in its proper context. All right. Meanwhile, the accuser of the brethren will continue to accuse us and tell us that we're not good enough and you just need to tell him to shut up. Really, truly. I'm not saying you ignore things in your life, but don't let the enemy just stand there and accuse you and read off a list to you of all your failures, all your miseries. You're fully aware. You turn and you press into God for his transformative power. You don't live there where the accuser continues to lie to you. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way, the most recent podcast will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.